Welcome to week number seven of our journey uh, through 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, uh, where we're talking together about the life of King David and we're learning to walk in the footsteps of the king. It's really been uh, a quick seven weeks. These weeks have gone by so fast as we've been studying David's life. Only nine weeks are we studying through his life and so we'll have only two more Sundays to deal uh, with the subject of David and his example to us. We've been pretty impressed, or at least I have, I hope you have, uh, been pretty impressed over the last six weeks as we have followed along uh, with the qualities, the virtues of the life of King David. We have seen uh, such qualities as integrity and wisdom and kindness and courage. We learned that David was a man after God's own heart. David had the courage to face down the mighty giant Goliath, the champion of the Philistines. We learned of David's patience in the waiting room, and we asked God to give us a similar kind of patience when we have to wait on him. We saw David's wisdom and God's goodness to David in surrounding him with mighty men, these, these mighty men who fought alongside him and helped carry out God's will in his life. We, we learned that David was a passionate worshiper. We saw how that he worshiped the Lord. And last week we saw that he was willing and gracious to share the mercy that he had received from God when he invited Mephibosheth to join his family. I think we would agree that David is in almost every way uh, an exemplary model for us to follow along after, to model our lives after. But you'll notice that I said that David is an exemplary model in almost every way. While David did have, and we've been learning that David had a heart, a genuine heart to please God. David was also just like you and me. David was human. And because he was human, it means that he was not perfect. And his failures, and there's more than one or two, and his failures are included in God's account of his life. Here's the truth you should know. God is honest about his heroes. Amen. God tells the whole story. And he tells the whole story about David's life. What we're going to discover today is that this man with whom we have been so blessed and impressed, this man was imperfect. And listen, can we just get honest for a minute? Who among us has not failed? Amen? Can I get a witness? Any sinners in the room? Any stumblers in the room? All of us are. None of us will get to death's door and be able to say on that moment before we die, I have absolutely no regrets. Now, we hope to be able to say I don't have many regrets and, and where I've stumbled, God's given me grace to get up and he's healed and helped and forgiven. But the fact is, all of us are broken and fallen and so none of us will be able to get there and say we have no regrets. We all have the potential to commit the very deeds that we're going to watch David commit as we read this text today. And all of us, whether we've committed the exact same sins that David commits in this passage, all of us bear our own responsibility for our own 
failures. Though we might consider them to be a degree or two removed from what David does in our passage, the fact is we're all guilty and we've all sinned. Now, sadly, in the church, we sometimes deny this reality, don't we? We, we like to pretend within the walls of the church that we have it all together. It really is true. We, we like to put on the appearance that we are all perfect. And when we try to do that, when we're dishonest, about our brokenness and our stumblings and our failures, then what happens is Sunday morning in the congregation becomes a parade of the pious where we walk around looking like or pretending as if we have never stumbled rather than Sunday morning being a gathering and a rejoicing of the ragtag bunch of redeemed people who don't pretend to be perfect, but we proclaim to have a perfect Savior and when we live in the gospel, when we live in the forgiveness and the healing and the help that Jesus offers, then we're able to rejoice. Even though we're not perfect, we're able to rejoice in the fact that he has redeemed us. Today, we're going to be looking in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter number 12, and we're going to talk about, we're going to talk honestly about David's great failure, his great failure. But we're also going to talk about his wholehearted repentance. And we're going to ask the Lord to help us learn from his mistakes. So would you whisper that prayer before I read the passage? Would you just say, Lord, teach me. Lord, teach me from David's failure. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse number 1. And it came to pass, after the year was expired... At the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon. They besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still or stayed in Jerusalem. And it came to pass in an evening tide, late one evening, that David arose from off of his bed and he walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman washing herself, taking a bath. And the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired after the woman. And one came and said, Is not this Bathsheba? She is the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And David sent messengers and took her. And she came in unto him, and he lay with her, for she was purified from her uncleanness, and then she returned unto her house. And the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am with child. So David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah had come unto him, David demanded of him, asking how Joab did. How are the people, the army, doing? How is the war prospering? And David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah departed out of the king's house. And David sent after him, or there followed him, a mess of meat, a great meal that the king sent for him. 
Verse 9 says, But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go to his own house. When they told David, saying Uriah did not go down to his own house, David uh, said to Uriah, "You, You came home from your journey. Why then did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said unto David, the ark of God and, and Israel and Judah abide in tents. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I go into my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. And David said to Uriah, tarry here also today and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah abode in Jerusalem that day. And the next day. And when David had called him, verse 13, he did eat and drink before him, and David made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. And it came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront. Of the hottest battle, and leave him there, retire from him, that he may be smitten and die. And it came to pass when Joab observed the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew that the valiant men were. And when the, and the men of the city went out and fought with Joab, and there fell some of the people of the servants of David. Verse 17 ends by saying, And Uriah the Hittite died also. Now, I think that most every one of us in the room uh, is at least in some uh, degree familiar with this tale, this sordid episode in the life of King David. But even though we know the story, or at least most of you do, um, there's a lot for us to learn here. And I want us to work through this passage Today, two things ought to be said at the outset, just as we're getting started, uh, and and then once once I sort of lay this foundation, I want to move on and work through the passage. The first thing that I think needs to be said at the outset is just to speak to the guilt, if there is any, or or the lack of guilt of Bathsheba uh, in this episode. Some have said that Bathsheba bears a measure of guilt for what happened between her and David, uh, if only because she showed some form or some measure of um, carelessness or immodesty. Some have said, well, she should have known better and she should have been more careful to conceal herself so that David uh, would not uh, have been able to see her. Some have even gone so far as to call Bathsheba a seductress. And to say that this was in fact her intent all along. And she posed herself enticingly for David. And of course others have said, no, neither one of those things are true. She bears no responsibility at all. Now here's the fact. No matter how you view that particular issue of Bathsheba's guilt, here's the biblical text on it. If you you exegete the passage, here's what you learn. It is that God lays no responsibility on Bathsheba at all. None. There's no mention of guilt on Bathsheba's part. In fact, in chapter 12 and verse number 7, which we'll get to in a few minutes, Nathan looks at David and doesn't say, you and Bathsheba are the ones who did wrong. He says to David, you are the guilty party. You are the man. 
So I want us in the beginning today to focus our attention where it rightly ought to focus, and that is on David's sin and not try to impose any of that when the Bible does no such thing on Bathsheba. The second thing that I think that we should uh, acknowledge at the outset is that as we examine this episode, we ought to do so with humility. There's a tendency for us in this moment to say, tisk, tisk, tisk. David, what a sinner you are. How terrible a thing for you to do. As I mentioned earlier, all of us have the potential to do the same kinds of things that David does in this passage. And there's, a, there's an interesting passage in the book of 1 Corinthians where Paul reminds us of some of the failures of God's heroes in the past. And he says, this is why God is honest about his heroes. He shows us their failures to be an example to us. And he goes on to say in, in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 12, let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So if you wade into 2 Samuel chapter 11 saying, David, I can't believe you would do such a thing. I know that I would never do such a thing. You might rather have the attitude of the Pharisee who said, thank you, God, that I am not like this public and this sinner. Let's approach this text with some humility, okay? But having said that, I want you to begin with me by writing down today what is the obvious point of this text. Let's talk about David's great sin. David's great sin you know, it might be more correct to say David's great sins because it really is not one sin in this passage. There are several sins that are obvious here. But we can call it David's great sin because, as is most often the case with all of us, our sins are very rarely compartmentalized, aren't they? They, they, they don't work that way. They tend to overlap. And one act of disobedience leads to another, which leads to another. And, and that's the way it's, it's rather like spaghetti sometimes. They all just sort of are intertwined together. And so David uh, did, in fact, commit some great sins in this passage. Well, let's walk through it. Verse number one tells us that um, it's the season of battle. It came to pass after the year was expired or when the new year, the new season of battle came along. You almost need to go back to chapter 10, verse number 14, uh, to understand what's happening in chapter 11, verse number 1. In chapter 10, verse 14, you're reading about a battle with the Syrians and with the children of Ammon. And verse 14 of chapter 10 says, when the children of Ammon saw that the Syrians had fled, then they also fled before Abishai, and they entered into their city. So they ran into their walled city and verse 14 says, so Joab, David's general, returned from the children of Ammon and he came back to Jerusalem. Well, why did he do that? Why not just besiege the city and go ahead and take the Ammonites? Well, quite literally because winter was coming on, the rainy season was beginning, and it was not the season that was conducive to battle. And so they would literally take a time out very often because of weather. Everybody retreat back to their cities and guys will meet back on the battlefield when springtime rolls around. It's exactly what's happening here. Chapter 11 verse 1, when springtime gets here, uh, when the year comes again, then David sent Joab and his servants and they went back to the children of Ammon and they fought that battle that had ended back in the winter 
and they destroyed them. So he sends Joab out, verse number one, but David remains alone in Jerusalem. He stays back in Jerusalem. Now, by the way, some people have said, this is why David sinned. He wasn't where he should have been. That could be true, but it's not necessarily true. There's no sin implied in the fact that David did not go out to battle. Verse 1 says he stayed in Jerusalem. Nothing inherently sinful or wrong about that. Well, verse 2 says, It came to pass one evening that David arose off of his bed and he walked upon the roof of the king's house. So he's alone in the palace. It's the evening time. He's restless. He can't sleep. And so he's out on the balcony or on the roof walking. Verse number 2 says he sees Bathsheba uh, taking a bath and uh, she is very beautiful to look upon. And so this begins this uh, uh, series of events which leads to David's great Sin. Now, by the way, this is really, really instructive for us. And I want you to write this down. It's really obvious when you read this passage. What are the steps that led to David's great sin and to his fall? You have your pen in your hand. I want you in verse number two to circle these two words he saw. David's on the roof. He can't sleep. He's walking around on his balcony. And verse two says he saw Bathsheba. No indication that he went out looking for Bathsheba. Maybe he did. I don't know. But the Bible doesn't say that he did. He's just on his roof and he sees her. Again, no sin implied there. What could David have done in that moment? He could have been walking on his balcony. He sees her and goes, oh, I'm going to go back in. He could have bounced his eyes. He could have, he could have turned away. But he didn't do it. There was a second step that he took after he saw her, and that's in verse number three, he sought her. He sought her. Verse number three says, he sent and inquired after her. He sought more information. So what he saw with his eyes, he then began to contemplate in his mind. What he saw with his eyes, he then began to to desire in his mind, he pursued Bathsheba before he ever sent to get her. He pursued her in his mind. He wanted to know who she was, and he gets the word. This is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, the daughter of Eliam. He saw her, he sought her. The third step is that he sent for her. This is in verse number four when it says he sent messengers. And took her. He brought her to his bedroom. Now, I would just suggest to you that he steps over the line right here for sure. He absolutely crosses over the, the barrier that should have been in front of him at that point, And he brought her to his bedroom. Now, maybe he would say, well, you know what? She looks like a nice lady. She's married to Uriah, one of my soldiers. I'd just like to get to know her a little better. We're just going to talk. We'll just be friends. But he crossed the line. The fourth thing in the step toward his great sin is that he slept with her. He saw her. He sought more information. He considered it in his mind. He brought her, sent her for her, and then he slept with her. By the way, I should say that it was a foregone conclusion in any honest 
observation of this event that when he went from thinking or went from simply seeing and not turning his, his, his eyes and he began to think about, he sold information, he brought her in, what finally occurred was a foregone conclusion. It was going to happen. You should learn this principle. You know it already, but you should never forget it. It is that sin begins in the heart before it is activated in our flesh. It begins in the mind and in the heart before we carry it out. This is the way it is with all sin. It starts in the mind and in the heart. And David would have been wise to have heard the wisdom that Solomon, his son, would share in years to come in Proverbs 4.23, which says, Guard your heart with all diligence. Keep your heart, because from your heart, all the issues of life are going to occur. They're going to flow out of there. David should have known better. He should have guarded his heart. James affirms this in the New Testament when he writes, But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And then when lust hath conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it's finished, brings forth death. So James says what Solomon reminds us of it is that we need to guard our hearts first. That's the first line of defense because anything that's going to happen out here in my life is going to begin here in my mind and in my heart in the first place. Now, this is true of any kind of sin. Jesus says it all proceeds from the heart. Hold your, hold your finger or put a marker in 2 Samuel 11 if you will, I want you to go over to the New Testament, to the Gospel of Mark. And I want you to see uh, what Jesus said about this. Mark chapter number 7. And uh, you'll see that this principle of sin beginning in the heart before it happens in our flesh is, is an absolutely universal principle which Jesus taught us. Mark chapter 7 and verse number 20. Jesus says, That which comes out of the man is that that defiles a man. For from within, everybody say from within. Let's say it, from within. Say it again, from, there you go. Jesus said, from inside of me, from within, out of the, everybody say heart, out of the heart of man proceed evil thoughts and adulteries and sexual immorality or fornication and murders and thefts, and covetousness, and wicked eyes. The wicked eye. The wicked eye means envy, and blasphemy, or, or slander, or pride, or foolishness. He just gives this list. and He says all of these sins begin in the heart. They come from within the man, and that is what defiles a man. So if I want to recognize the process of sin in my life and be able to grow and have victory over it, I need to start where it starts and I need to guard my heart. So it's true of every sin, but what does the Bible say particularly about sexual sin? Because David's sin in this case, Bathsheba, uh, David and Bathsheba, this, this sin uh, is a sexual sin to be sure. And so let's talk about what the Bible says about sexual sin. You're in Mark, so you're really close to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Would you turn there, please? 
1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we're going to begin in verse number 13, in the middle part of verse number 13, where here's what, here's what Paul tells us in this passage. Sexual sin is unique. All sin is sin. All sin separates us from God. But sexual sin is unique in that Paul says it is a sin against our own bodies. Look with me. 1 Corinthians 6, in the middle part of verse 13. Now, the body is not for sexual immorality. Now, just stop right there. And we just established, here's a fundamental principle. The body in which we live, though it tends toward sexual immorality and its fallenness, Paul says that's, the body is not for that. The body is not for fornication, or the body is not for sexual immorality, but the body is for the Lord. Your body is for the Lord. And he goes on to say in that verse, and the Lord for the body. In other words, what he says is, do you understand that Jesus, the Lord, came from heaven, died on the cross and rose from the dead so that you in your body could live for him? He came to destroy the works of the devil in your life. So that this body on the earth might live for him and bring him glory. This body is for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Verse number 14, and God hath, raised, hath both raised up the Lord and he will also raise us up by his own power. Do you not know, verse 15, that your bodies are members of Christ? Do you see how that Paul is emphasizing the holy work that the, that the work of salvation is to produce within our body. Christ came to transform my life, transform the use of my body, so that my body might serve him, and one day it will be buried, but that's not the end. He's going to raise this body up, and this body will live with him eternally. This body belongs to him, he says in verse number 15. It is his body. He is the head. We are the body of Christ. It is his body on the earth. So he says in verse 15, shall I then take his body and join it with a harlot? Shall I then take the body that belongs to him, that was redeemed for him, and use it for sexual immorality? No, I shouldn't. Verse number 15 ends by saying, God forbid May it never be so. Verse 16, what? Know you not that he which is joined to a harlot is one body? For two, God said, shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. The spirit dwells within me. I should not take this body and use it for fornication because he redeemed it for his use. He put his spirit within it. I should not use it for fornication. Verse 18, rather, I should flee fornication. Every sin that we do is outside of the body, but he that commits sexual immorality is sinning against his own body. What do you not know? That your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which you have of God and you are not your own. For you are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's. Here's what Paul says so emphatically. I, in fact, I, I can't emphasize it strongly enough. Paul says that when you commit sexual immorality, when, when you commit sexual sin, 
You are taking the body that belongs to God and is redeemed by him and filled by him and will live forever with him and is his body on the earth and you are using his body for sexual impurity. Do you think you can do that and God not be offended by that? He says that sexual sin is unique because it is a sin against the body. Secondly, Paul tells us in the New Testament that sexual sin hinders, it wars against, it works against the work of sanctification in our lives. I'm going to turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4. It's just a few pages forward in your Bible. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3, 4, and 5 say this, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. So here's the will of God for you. Don't engage in sexual immorality. So that every one of you would know how to possess your body in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of sexual passion, even as the Gentiles which know not God. He says that the will of God is my sanctification. But when I'm engaging in sexual immorality, I'm fighting against God's will of sanctifying my life. One other thing that Paul teaches us about sexual sin in the New Testament is found in Colossians 3. Turn back one page to Colossians 3, verse number 1. He teaches us in this passage that sexual sin is idolatry. It's an interesting thought. I want you to notice what he says. Verse 1, if you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sits on the right hand of God. Set your affection... On things above, not on the things of the earth. For you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, you shall appear with him in glory. Therefore, because your affections are set on things above, and you're looking for Christ to come, and you know that when he comes, you will appear with him in glory, as a result of that, mortify your members. Because you have died to your old life, then mortify your members which are upon the earth, this human, this fleshly body, let it die to its own desires and live to his. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil desire, concupiscence, and covetousness, these things are idolatry. So what does the Bible say about sexual sin? Well, in short, it says that when you sin sexually, that you are sinning against the body that Christ resides in, that he redeemed, that he will raise up and that will live with him forever, that you are opposing the work of sanctification in your life and that you are in fact not just committing sexual immorality, you are committing rank idolatry. Now you might ask the question, well, who is the idol or what is the idol that I'm worshiping when I am committing sexual sin? It is the God, little g, of me. The idolater is me and the idol is me. Because in sexual sin, we are serving our own demands. We are satisfying our own inordinate desires. And we are saying that the desires of our flesh rank higher than the lordship, the authority of Christ. Write this down. We'll get back to our text in 2 Samuel is that David's power and pride is what caused his great sin. It wasn't so much his sexual desire for Bathsheba 
Certainly that was a part of it, but it was more about his power and his pride. And it caused him to push past every single barrier that should have been in front of him to stop him from doing such a thing. By the way, when he sent for her and found out more information about her, here's what they found out. She's the daughter of Eliam, which if you read the rest of, the, of, of uh, First and Second Samuel, you'll see Eliam again. He is the son of Ahithophel. That means that Bathsheba is the granddaughter of Ahithophel. And Ahithophel is one of David's counselors. He's sleeping with the granddaughter of a, of a trusted counselor. It tells us that she's in all likelihood very much younger than he is. And then he finds out not only is she so much younger than me, she is the granddaughter of my trusted friend. She is the wife of Uriah, who was one of his mighty men, one of his 37 most faithful warriors. All of those things should have caused him to go, no, no, no. What am I thinking? How could I ever? But in his power and his pride, he pushed through all of it. In a moment, we'll read in chapter number 12 of 2 Samuel where Nathan the prophet will speak to David. And David's own response, his own words will be to say that any man who, who would do such a thing would have no pity. That means he would in pride, he would take what he had no right to. I think you would agree with me that David's example to us in this case is not a good one. It is an example that sexual sin is devastating. Now, let me try to help us just for a minute, not just with information, but with some practical steps. Uh, jot these things down. What might we do? If, if sexual sin is a sin against my own body, the body that Christ redeemed and lives in and will raise up to live with him eternally, I don't want to join it to a harlot. I don't want, to, want it to uh, be engaging in sexual immorality. That's working against the sanctification of God in my life, and it's just exposing this pride and, and arrogance and idolatry in our lives then what steps can we take to avoid it? Let me suggest, first of all, one, these are not necessarily related uh, to anything I've said so far, but they're just practical steps that we know will help us. Number one is you should get into God's Word. John 17, 17, Jesus prayed that God would sanctify us through the Word. The Word of God has a sanctifying process in our lives. It cleans our lives up. Somebody told me when I first got saved, they said, this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. Now, I don't have a relationship with a book. I have a relationship with the Lord. But his word to me is on the pages of this book. And this book will lead me away from sin and into fellowship with him. Or if I live in sin, it will cause me to want to refuse to receive this book. So spend time in God's word. Number two, guys particularly, but all of us uh, can follow this advice, guard your eyes. If you want to abstain from sexual immorality, guard your eyes. Do what David didn't do. When you see something that you were not intended to see, bounce the eyes. Look away. And look away immediately as an act of worship. Oh, Lord, I worship you. Bounce the eyes. If you're surfing the internet, if you're looking at porn sites, if you're, if you're spending quiet times alone and you're online watching uh, internet pornography, stop. And if you can't stop, get some help. And your church is here to help you with that. Guard your eyes. Number three, guard your heart. Keep it humble. Keep it honest before God. Say, Lord, I, I know my weaknesses. God, I know I, I can fail in this area and I want you to help me. Be humble. Number four, guard your alone time. Simply put, don't be alone. 
with someone with whom you might commit sexual sin. If you're in a dating relationship and, and you're trying to remain pure, and I hope you are trying to remain pure. If you're a Christian, you're dating someone, you're trying to remain sexually pure and wait for marriage, but you're spending time alone and you're struggling to remain pure, hello, dummy. <laughs> Stop spending time alone. This is like sexual purity for dummies, okay? Stop spending time alone. You and I need to guard our alone time. Be careful about who you're alone with. We have, a, we have a rule among our staff. All of our pastors know we don't spend time alone with another woman other than our, our wives. We don't ride in cars alone. We don't go in our office and close the door alone. We, we, don't, we don't hang out in offices together alone. Because we, got, we don't even have private communication. Ladies, if you ever send me an email, know this. The reply will include my wife every single time without fail. Because we don't spend time alone where there might be temptation and sin. Guard your alone time. Number five, love and serve your spouse. If you want to avoid sexual immorality, if you're married, pour your life into your spouse. Because when you love your spouse, then all the others that might tempt you will fade away. In the background is what Proverbs 5 and 6 tells us, that we ought to be satisfied with the wife, the spouse of our youth. Well, that's five simple things that will help us to avoid sexual sin. Go back to our text, if you will. 2 Samuel chapter number 11, as often happens in a situation like this, Bathsheba became pregnant, chapter 11, verse number 5. The woman conceived and sent and told David, I am with child. And that news started David's great cover-up. The cover-up involved a simple plan. Well, we can get over this, not a problem. There's no DNA tests in those days. Send Uriah home. If we get Uriah home to bring me a report from the battlefield, we know what will happen. He's going to go see his wife. And so when he goes back to the battlefield and finds out and, and, and word spreads, oh, she's going to have a baby. Well, you know, Uriah was home. Problem solved. Only problem is he didn't count on Uriah's integrity. And Uriah said, nope, not going home. Not while my, my company is in, is in battle. David took it to the next level. If I get him drunk, I, he'll go to his house if I can get him drunk. So he gets him drunk the next night. He still maintains his integrity. And so David does the only thing that he has left to do. Uriah has to die. His faithful, loyal servant, his friend Uriah, who has put his life on the line for David on more occasions than one, Uriah is put into the worst part of the battle and then they leave him there where he is killed. The Bible says that Uriah, verse 17, the Hittite died. And so Bathsheba is a widow. David takes her to be his own wife. But look at chapter number 11, verse 27, the last sentence in this, ver in this uh, chapter. It says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. If y'all are listening, would you say amen? amen? David covered his tracks. It took a lot of work. It took some pretty difficult decisions. It cost the life not only of Uriah but of other soldiers who died in that battle where he sent Uriah to die. It was a heavy price to pay, but he did what he had to do to cover things up. And yet God knew. And the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Look at chapter 12 and verse number 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. And Nathan came to him and said unto him, There were two men in one city. One was rich and the other poor. 
The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing. Only one little lamb, which he had brought up and nourished, it grew together with him and with his children. It ate his own uh, off his table. It drank from his own cup. This little lamb laid in his bosom and was just like a daughter to him. And there came a traveler under the rich man, and he didn't want to take out of his own abundant flocks or of his own herd to feed the wayfaring man. So he took the poor man's little lamb and killed it and dressed it and served it as a meal to his friend. Verse 5, David's anger was kindled. Who would do such a thing? As the Lord lives, David says, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, because he had no pity in his arrogance. He took what belonged to someone else and he had no right to it. Verse 7, and Nathan said, you are that man. The Lord God of Israel says, I anointed thee king over Israel. And I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your bosom. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. If it had been too little, I would have given you anything else. So why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in, this, in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife. You've slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart out of your house, because you have despised me. You have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite, to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of your own house. I will take thy wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all of Israel and before the son. Nathan says, You're the man. And then he goes on to prescribe five effects, long-lasting results of David's great sin. Did you see them in verse number 10? It said, the sword will never depart from your house. If y'all are listening to me, I want you to shout amen. amen. The sword will never depart from your house. Verse number 11, evil will arise from within your, within your own family. Verse 11, David, you'll lose your own wives. Verse number 11, you will, uh, your wives will sleep with another man. Verse number 14, the enemies of the Lord will blaspheme. Verse number 14, your unborn child, the child that Bathsheba is carrying, will die. There's the five things he says will happen as a result of your sin. And let me tell you something. When David was feasting his eyes on beautiful Bathsheba that night so many months ago, when he was considering his options and rolling over in his mind, the possibilities, and Satan was stoking that fire and encouraging him down that path, Satan didn't tell him those five things because he never does. He never tells you the whole story. He only tempts you with the pleasure and doesn't share with you the consequences. David sinned greatly. Now, all of us can relate, whether we've sinned in the same fashion or not, all of us can relate to the temptation and the sin that is so real in us. David was a great sinner in this passage, but the good news is that David also knew how to repent. And because I'm speaking to a room full of sinners, and I am a sinner myself, I'm excited to tell you that we have the opportunity to repent when we sin. Amen? Praise God for that. This passage tells us about David's true repentance. In verse number 13, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. He repents. I want you to turn over to Psalm 51. We're almost finished 
go to Psalm 51, a psalm that is attributed to David immediately following Nathan's confrontation. When David begins to repent before God for all that he had done, I want you to look with me at what he says in verse number 3. Psalm 51 and verse number 3, For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Let me tell you what the word repent means. Listen carefully. It means to agree with God, to change my mind and agree that what God says is true and to change my direction and turn in a different way. Repentance acknowledges that God is holy. That's what repentance does. It doesn't hedge. It doesn't pretend. It doesn't say, well, I'm not as bad as the next guy. I know that was a minor indiscretion. I know, you know, it's a lapse in judgment. No, repentance, true repentance says, oh God, you are holy and I am not. It acknowledges our sin. And then it's honest. I mean, three different words he uses here to admit the depths of his fallenness. He says, I've committed transgression. It means rebellion. He says, I've committed sin. It means I'm I'm guilty of disobedience. He even says, I have been evil. I mean, this is bare, naked honesty. No hedging on David's part. No pretending. No no passing it off as boys will be boys. No. God, I have rebelled against you. I have done evil in your sight. This is what we need. We need repentance. And simultaneous with and and joined with, mingled in with his repentance is his faith. You see it in verse 1, verse 2, verse 7, verse 9, 10, 11, verse 14, where over and over he says, Have mercy upon me. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly. I will be clean. Make me whiter than snow. Give me a clean heart. Renew a white spirit. Over and over he says, oh God, please forgive me. Repentance and faith. Let me ask you, are are you lost? Have you never trusted Christ as your Savior? Here's what you need. Repentance and faith. God, I'm sorry I'm a sinner, and I believe you're merciful, and I'm asking you to save me. That'll make a difference in your eternity. But are you saved and you're sinning? Are you saved and you're living in sexual immorality? Or you're living in any other kind of patterns of sin? Do you know what you need? You need repentance and faith. You need to tell God, I'm wrong. Forgive me, and I believe the gospel. I believe that you can wash me clean. David's great sin was followed by his authentic and genuine repentance. And then lastly, just to close before we go home, how could I leave, uh, send you out of here without thinking about David's great hope after his sin? You know, the world would have you believe, and sometimes, sadly, the church will tell you that once you sin, you're marked goods and Well, there's no hope for you after you've sinned. You've fallen and all is done and the church and everything Christian would just wash their hands and put you off to the side. That is not the gospel. Can somebody shout amen? There's no hope in that. David sinned greatly, but he repented of his sin and he had great hope 
in God's goodness. Look at Psalm 51, verse number 8. He says, make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which you have broken may rejoice. Verse number 12, restore to me the joy of thy salvation. Do you know what you can hope for after you've sinned? You can have joy again. Can I tell you? Joy can be yours again when you come to him in repentance and faith. Not only joy, but you can have usefulness. You can be used by God. Satan will tell you if you sin, if you fall, God can never use your life. Not true. He can. And he used David's life after his great sin as well. Verse 13, 14, and 15. I will teach transgressors your ways. Sinners shall be converted. My tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Verse 15. My mouth will show forth thy praise. His hope was that God would take his broken life and fill it with joy and make it useful. For him again. And then, if you'll go back to our text in 2 Samuel 11, let me just finish by showing you how that David, even after his brokenness, had such hope. Because you remember, one of the things that happened was that Nathan said that baby that Bathsheba is carrying is going to die. Well, when you get into chapter number 12 of 2 Samuel, the baby is born and it's born very sick and David begins to pray that God will save that baby's life. And, and God doesn't. The baby does indeed pass. And the text tells us in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse number 19 that David realizes the baby has died and he gets up off the floor. He's been fasting and weeping and begging God to save the child's life. And when the child dies, he gets up, washes his face, comes to the table, says, bring me my dinner. And, and his servants are like, why are you now straightening up and feeling better after the baby died? Listen to what he says at the end of, uh, in chapter 12 and verse number 23. But he is now dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? You see this? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. You know what David's saying? If y'all are listening, say amen. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, you know what? This whole sordid thing with Bathsheba, this thing that, that I did that night, Nine months ago, when my eyes saw and my heart and mind sought, and I began to act on that, and what began in my mind and worked out in my life and has brought such brokenness and brought such destruction, my horrible sin, here's what I know, that one day in heaven, Jesus is going to make all things right. And even though... My child died as a result of my sin. I know that he's with the Lord. And one day, I'll see him there. I will go to him. That's hope. That this world is not the end of the story. Praise God. That one day, he will set everything right. Right.